Hello and welcome to the Classical Music Pod. Today we talk to Debbie Wiseman, OBE, on her recent collaboration with Stephen Fry. We've also got thoughts on the West End's latest big budget show, The Prince of Egypt. We've found the point at which Sergei Rachmaninoff and Jacob Collier meet. And a woman whose best friend is her piano. Was her piano. Quick question for you, Tim. Is the culture sector too woke for its own good? That's the argument that some are making after a report on censorship and self-censorship in the industry was published this week by the website Arts Professional. Mm, Based on a survey of arts professionals conducted over the autumn in which participants were guaranteed anonymity, the report found that nearly 80% agreed that workers in the arts who share controversial opinions risk being professionally ostracised. And did it say what a controversial opinion might constitute? So an example would be coming out in favour of Brexit. Ah, I mean, that's not that controversial. Not that controversial, no, but one participant claimed they were unable to challenge anything that's extremely left-wing or politically correct for fear of being called racist, xenophobic or bigoted. And then another commented that public funding is increasingly a problem for freedom of speech and that if you're critical of the government or the Arts Council you're probably putting your organisation at risk. I certainly agree with that latter point. It feels a little bit like there are two separate issues there, that you've got how people personally relate to one another and want to work with one another, which in a freelance industry does rely on those personal relationships as well as those professional ones. Um, So maybe if you disagree with someone on Brexit, I think that's quite disappointing if you're not not prepared to work with them as Mm. a result. But to be fair, if someone is saying xenophobic or racist things in support of their lust for Brexit, then I wouldn't want to work with them. Yeah. The other side of the coin is having to fit with the government's and art council's line on what they believe is important in those values. So that's more of an institutional area, I think. Exactly. And the example that Richard Morrison gave in his column in The Times last week was his experience at the recent Association of British Orchestras conference in which a room full of orchestral managers rather sycophantically took the side of an arts council mandarin who argued that it was not important that every child is able to read music. And Morrison was incredulous that a group of people with an enormous vested interest in music education would bow to the opinion of an arts bureaucrat. But of course, it makes sense because he's the one doling out the cash. Yeah, hard to disagree with him. If you'd like to read that report, then you can find a link in the description below. One of those orchestras we hope won't be kowtowing to pressure is the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. They have announced this month that their tour to Poland and Hungary will be conducted via train rather than plane. We're told the switch will increase the overall journey time from 3 to 24 hours, but will save 15,000 metric tonnes of CO2. 
Bowing to woke pressure doesn't always have to be a bad thing, it seems. Those were the delightful sounds of 53-year-old Dagmar Turner, a violinist in the Isle of Wight Symphony Orchestra, playing her instrument as a surgeon removed her brain tumour. Mm, the tumour was located in the right frontal lobe, close to the area that controls the left hand. So, Turner and her neurosurgeon, Kimoaz Ashkan, who is also a pianist with a degree in music, devised a plan to monitor the quality of her playing during the operation to make sure they were not damaging those parts of her brain that control delicate hand movements. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. While Ashkan cut away at the tumour, Miss Turner, under a local anaesthetic, played Summertime, Julio Iglesias's Besame Mucho, and Marla's Fifth Symphony. What a great playlist as well. Amazing! And this isn't the first time a musician has performed during their own surgery. In 2018, the South African jazz musician Musa Manzini played his guitar as a tumour was removed from his brain. And then in 2014, the singer Alma Kante sung during an operation to remove a tumour from her throat. I'm reliably told that during craniotomies, the worst bit is the smell. Oh. Yeah. Speaking of popping the lid, the Canadian pianist Angela Hewitt has lamented in a Facebook post the untimely demise of her F278 Fazioli piano, which was dropped by specialist instrument movers just after she finished recording Beethoven's Diabelli Variations. The worst specialist Not instrument good for the brand. ever. Not at all. The handmade instrument, which Hewitt described as her best friend, was inspected by the firm's Italian founder, Pablo Fazioli. And he declared it unsalvageable. And Hewitt later said, I hope my piano will be happy in piano heaven. So do we, Angela. Also, describing a piano as your best friend. (laughs) I hope you're happy, Angela. (laughs) If anyone's interested in following up on how musicians bond with the instruments they play, there's a lovely article by The Guardian's Michael Hahn that we've linked below, which includes uh, little tidbits from people like Esperanza Spaulding. Oh, we love Esperanza. Love her. Or if you're feeling emotionally durable... Look up the terrible tragedy of Balaki Sissoko and his kora, which is a beautiful traditional African instrument that was destroyed by US customs recently. And finally, the author of The Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown, is to publish his first children's picture book alongside an album of classical music also written by him, performed by the Zagreb Festival Orchestra. Wild Symphony follows the adventure of Maestro Mouse, who visits a series of animal friends including a cheetah, kangaroo and blue whale. Each of the animals have their track on the album, which is, we're told, inspired by Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf and possibly Bernard Hughes's Not Now Bernard and other stories. I hadn't realised this until now, but Brown actually had a sort of semi-successful career as a soft rock singer in the early 90s. Before he found fame as a writer, he recorded two albums, the first of which features a song about phone sex called 976 Love. The lyrics go, I take you to bed and push the phone to my head. You make me feel like a man. Would you like to hear it?
Analysis. Tim, what have microtonal pixie Jacob Collier and Russian granite-carved pianist Sergei Rachmaninoff got in common? I don't know. What do Jacob Collier and Rachmaninoff have in common? They both use inversion. Great! Stop! Stop! Wait, there's more. It wasn't just a bad knock-knock joke. Ah, sorry. Our last episode, being a palindrome, got me thinking about musical palindromes and things that can be flipped and still sound lovely. Like Taverners the Lamb. For one, or the surprisingly pleasing sentence, Yo, Banana Boy! Musically, anyone who has done their grade one piano has experienced inversion with their contrary motion scale, the hands starting together and stepping away from each other like a pair of Georgian gentlemen duelling. Just for clarity, so far as we know, Rachmaninoff and Jacob Collier have not fought a duel. But they have used inversion in two different ways. Jazz Wunderkind, Jacob Collier, has set the YouTube comment sections ablaze with his talk of negative harmony. Which is not just depressed chords. This is really nerf. No, it's not. Negative harmony is not a new idea. Composers have been playing with it since Chopin dropped Nocturne No. 2 in A-flat, which opened like this. It was formalised by Ernst Levy in the early 20th century. He stated that any harmonic pull to the tonic, for instance a classic 5-7-1 progression, has a mirror image pull from the negative side, in this case minor chord 4 to 1, the progression Chopin used. Okay, so how do we find these negative chords? The position of the mirror, the line of symmetry, over which this harmonic butterfly painting is flipped is the only piece of information you need to know to start being harmonically inverse yourself. Is it on the tonic? I'm afraid not. It's a little bit more complex than that. The line of symmetry is exactly halfway in between the tonic and the dominant. If we're in C major, that's C and G. The line of symmetry is in between E and E flat, a dotted line down the crack of the piano. Four semitone steps in one direction and four semitone steps in from the other. If you flip all the notes of the dominant chord over that axis, your G becomes a C, your B becomes an A-flat, and your D becomes an F. If you do it to a chord sequence, you start to sound like Jacob Collier. Here's a very common chord sequence used by everyone from Bach to Charlotte Bray, A7, D7, G7, and back to the tonic C. If you flip all of those chords through the looking glass, you get some Collier-flowered ears, E flat minus 6, B flat minus 6, F minus 6, and then C. So Jacob is inverting harmony amongst many other very interesting things. Is that what Rachmaninoff is doing as well? It's not, but he is doing some inverting when he's turning this. into this. Those two clips are of Rachmaninoff himself playing his variations on a theme of Paganini, written in 1934. Many composers, including Andrew Lloyd Webber, Lutislawski and Johannes Brahms, have written variations on this theme as a virtuosic showpiece. The original composer of the theme was an early 19th century violin virtuoso 
who was so good, audiences assumed he must have made a deal with the devil. The original theme is, I think we'd agree, fast, anxious, and skittish. Rack, himself a world-famous performer, wrote a total of 24 variations on the theme, each one pulling out a different aspect of the original. It's in the 18th variation that inversion gets involved. Does he use negative harmony? No. This is really enough. He goes for a melodic inversion. Every step up in the original piano part becomes a step down in that 18th variation. This becomes this. But what I think is doubly clever is he inverts the mood too. What was capricious and furtive becomes languid and spacious. The melody sprawls out. That inversion of mood packs a real punch. Perhaps one day, JC will combine these three kinds of inversion. Negative harmony, melodic inversion, and mood switching. Just imagine. You're not very good at it. Tim, you've been listening to some CDs with unpronounceable composers. I know, I'm doing a double whammy New of, review, of reviewing for you. Christoph Penderecki's Horn and Violin Concertos and Gustav Diaz Jerez, his Machek. I don't think I pronounced any of that particularly well. But with but great energy. I really enjoyed it. Let's start off with the Penderecki, which is from the London Philharmonic Orchestra with Radovan Vlakovic on horn, Barnabas Kellerman on violin, and Michal Dorinsky conducting. Again, great energy. Thank you very much. <laughs> This is a mashup of two live recordings at the Royal Festival Hall back in 2013 and 2015, and it works as a kind of backwards cross-section of Penderecki's orchestral output, starting with his 2007-8 horn concerto and finishing with the piece that really brought him to international attention, his threnody for the victims of Hiroshima. Great piece. Radovan Vlakovic is a horn player, which is a lyrical, very beautiful piece that nods to the galloping concertos of Mozart and Strauss, but <laughs> also offers a glimpse of the lower, darker spectrum of sound that the horn's capable of making. It's not something that we hear a lot. Yeah. A series of cadenzas mark the transitions between sections, and it's here that Vlakovic is able to show off his incredible virtuosity. It's a really stunning performance. The second trap skips back a decade. It's a string arrangement of the Adagio from his third symphony, written in 1995. It's also very lyrical. I might be wrong, but it felt as though he was hinting at Wagner's Tristan. I could hear the opening notes. Mm. La, da, 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 come back a lot. And yeah. uh, that coupled with a feeling of constantly searching gave the work a real sort of Wagner tinge. The third track, his violin concerto with Barnabas Kellerman, makes up the bulk of the disc at 40 minutes. It's 
from 1976, it's a period in which Penderecki transitions out of the avant-garde and settles on the, the neo-romantic style that defined a lot of his later music. It's a gorgeous performance of what is a relentlessly solemn work, the hints of Mahler and Bruckner and this wonderful recurring march in the timpani that drags the rest of the orchestra along in their collective weeping. Might be a little bit bleak for these grey February months. Uh, it's certainly... Uh, made me feel sad this morning listening okay. to it. <laughs> so emotionally affected. Emotionally affected. The disc then ends with the screaming threnody for the victims of Hiroshima, which is a masterclass in sonority and won him the UNESCO Prize in 1961. Mm. He instructs the violins in the opening phrase, for example, to play the highest note they can, whatever that is. <laughs> a competition. <laughs> yeah, literally. And he wrote that in this piece he was trying to emulate the electronic compositions of his avant-garde contemporaries, but with an acoustic ensemble. And I hadn't realised, but the dedication was actually added to the work after he'd heard the first recording. Yeah. And he felt that the original title, 8 minutes 37, which is a nod to Cage, felt too prosaic for a piece that is really emotionally provocative. And I think this collection works fantastically as a whole, not only because the performances are excellent, as you'd expect, with the best orchestra in London, but it also because of this backwards cross-section format. Sort of Benjamin Button. Yeah, exactly. There's a great quote from Penderecki's from 2000 in which he says, what I see now and for about 30 years, nothing has moved in the avant-garde. We pushed music so far in the 60s that even myself, for me, I closed the door behind me because there was no way to do anything more than I have done. Hmm. And it might be tempting to start a disc of his music with Threnody and then chart his development up to the present. But when the tracks are the other way around, Threnody becomes the key to unlocking everything you've just heard. It's, it's a sort of denouement hidden mm. behind, in his words, the closed door. It's yeah. the most adventurous he ever got. So as a listening experience, the disc has a real sense of direction. And for that reason, a lot of value is added listening to the whole thing in one sitting, which I did with great pleasure and great sadness, as I mentioned yeah, earlier. Nice. And that brings me to the second disc, Marek, which is a set of seven symphonic poems by the contemporary Spanish composer and pianist Gustavo Diaz Jerez. <laughs> This is something I would not recommend imbibing in one sitting, simply because it would be impossible to process everything. It's two and a half hours long. And a bit dense. Incredibly dense. <laughs> so it's a completely different listening experience, which I think comes down to the mode of composition he uses. He's a proponent of spectralism, which takes the material attributes of sound or timbre as the point of departure for composition. And he's also a proponent of computers, using them to come up with musical structures. Mm. The music is therefore fascinating, but for a lack of a better word, as you said, it's dense. Yeah. Each symphony is inspired by a specific locale on a different island in the Canaries, which is actually where he's from. And that, I thought, created a really interesting dichotomy between the synthetic technique he uses to create structure and the organic landscapes that feed the emotional intensity and colour of the work. 
the Scottish National Symphony Orchestra do an excellent job of bringing out the huge variety of colours in each of the symphonies. And the soloists are superb. As thought-provoking and challenging as the music is, however, I didn't get the same sense of primitivism and humanity that makes that Penderecki so quaffable. Yeah. And I struggle with music that's born out of a mathematical formula. And whilst each symphony was unique as a disc, it, it just doesn't have that sense of momentum that the Penderecki gives you. Mm. That says what Diaz Jerez does with the tools he's given himself is remarkable. And it's definitely worth dipping in over separate sessions, I should add, to get a taste of what he can do. Composer fact file, Christoph Penderecki. Born 1933 in Poland. He studied at the Academy of Music in Krakow. He won four Grammy Awards, one less than Billie Eilish. His music was used in horror films, The Exorcist and The Shining. He was a fervent Catholic. He wrote an opera based on Aldous Huxley's The Devils of Loudon. The Vatican called for him to retract the opera, which he refused to do on the grounds that he was interested in examining and telling the truth. A main belt asteroid, 21059 Penderecki, is named after him. He holds honorary doctorates from 19 universities, including one in Peru. He once said, Listening to classical music is like reading philosophy books. Not everyone has to do it. Music is not for everybody. Fisher, you're making it up. Why aren't you using the Encoder app like everyone else? What's Encoder? It's a music library app you can download right now. Start with a one-week free trial, then subscribe for just £9.99 a month to access the complete sales and hire catalogues of 100 publishers, including Boozy and Hawks, Baron Writer, Chester and Novello. But what if I want to write on my score with a pencil? Yeah, you can annotate the score with Encoder and share your markings with everyone else. So Simon Rattle literally called it the future of music making, duh. How do you spell Encoder? Not that again. From the top, gents. Sam, you went to see The Prince of Egypt. I did, and the stage show, not the 1998 DreamWorks film. <laughs> I mean... It is an adaptation of the film, and yeah, if yeah. you want to go and see the film, that is worthy, but don't go to the stage adaptation expecting it to be identical, because it isn't, Tim. They have had to add some things, and they've had to take some things away in order to transfer it to the stage. You lose all that gorgeous animation, but you do get the live essence of those performers, and importantly, you keep the Stephen Schwartz songbook, which is the richest of any animated movie I'm aware of. Yeah. And the only negative about that transference is that you've lost the Hans Zimmer incidental music, which is so gorgeous and includes the wonderful God theme. Yes. Do, 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 which just breaks my heart every time. So it's not identical, but overall a really good night out. And that good night out starts in spectacular fashion with Deliver Us, which is how the film starts as well, 
just such a moving and powerful song. Deliver us, send us shepherd to shepherd us. It's like, oh, the lyrics, the, the mm. gets me every time. It does. It's, I think, the strongest opening in the West End, other than possibly Book of Mormon and The Lion King. Lion King, as Those are the only yeah. two that get anywhere near it. Part of the power of that opening, I think, is also because music director Dave Rose keeps it really moving on at a good lick. And that's true of quite a lot of the songs. At no point does he let the show sit back. And I think that's really important for a live show in that you just want to keep the audience with that sense of momentum mm-hmm. throughout. Deliver Us has massive chorus sound in my head, anyway, watching the film. Is it the same? Is it transferred on stage? Absolutely. And I think the chorus are integral to the successful parts of this show. They sound fab. It's really full and fruity singing. And the dancing is as good and as athletic as anything I've seen on a stage outside of, you know, like Royal Ballet or something. Mm. I mean, the flexibility of some of these people putting their head and legs in places that I just didn't think was really possible. If you think about the range of skills that these chorus members have to have, in comparison to, say, an opera chorus member, that range of skills, I think, is almost unparalleled. Singing, certainly in several languages here, you've got a bit of Hebrew. These guys are all those triple threats Mm -hmm. that um, High School Musical told us about. They're used really creatively as well by the director with them actually at points physically holding up the show. They form the set and they become the river. And there's a wonderful moment at the end of the first half where they become the burning bush. They are the voice of God, speaking as a collective in this sort of weird, amorphous sound that is much more powerful than an expensive prop. The use of the chorus feels really theatrical in a way that is timeless. You know, it could have been Shakespearean. The part that doesn't for me is the projections onto the back screen. And oh, really? Yeah, I've seen it used well in other other shows. I think Wicked uses some quite well. Yeah. But here it just felt a little bit unnecessary, a little bit gimmicky, and it was almost like a gesture to people who'd enjoyed the animated film, being like, oh, look, we've got some animation there. And it just it didn't really add anything, and I found it a little bit distracting mm-hmm. and took away from the really powerful human elements that were happening on stage. Okay, so talk to me about the singing. Well... It's important to remember it's only previews, and it was February, and everyone's a little bit snotty. But for me, the women really showed up the blokes in this show. Um, I could see the support going on on the stomach of the woman playing Nefertari from 100 metres away. It was just that kind of committed singing that you go to the West End for. Just all the women leads were outstanding. You You couldn't fault the singing. It was right in the slot. It wasn't necessarily always to my taste. I think it was a, it's become a little bit more poppy and more like the Whitney Houston, uh, Mariah Carey duet yep. rather than the, the version from the film. And maybe that's just my familiarity. I would have preferred the version I'm familiar with. Mm. But there's no fault in the quality that's going on there. But the men didn't have the same quality to their voices. <sighs> I mean, on that night, in that preview... I didn't get blown away, particularly Heaven's Eyes is just a song. You know, all I have to do is listen to it and it will pull me out of any depths back up to feeling like a shining star. Mm-hmm. And it is just, it didn't do that live. Yeah, I know exactly the feeling. It's when I, like when I watched Tim Minchin play yeah. Judas and Jesus Christ Superstar, I was so devastated when he, <laughs> I mean, a lot of people loved it. It just didn't do it for me at all. And I have exactly the same. Yeah, I think it's because that song means a lot to me. Yeah. And Gary Wilmot, who's playing Jethro in it, gives his version. But that previous version means a lot to me. Yeah. And I wanted some of those characteristics, the depth of the voice, the almost like the, the operatic fach needed to be a bit heavier uh, in the sound. So that when... The Brian Blessed. Yeah, when he's telling you about the mountaintop, I want to hear the bottom of the mountain as well. So that was just a little bit underpowered for me especially in comparison to this chorus who are standing behind them and they must all be thinking 
Oh, we could do that better. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Is, is what I would be thinking. The exception to that is the man playing Hotep, who brings not only vocal gravitas, but I think a, a stagey gravitas as well. He's doing it as though he's at the Royal Shakespeare Company, mm. and he's the villain. In the film, it's Hotep and Hoy, a double act yes. of the, the two priests. That character has been condensed into one for this, which means you don't get playing with the big boys, which is a little bit sad. That's a shame. It is a shame, but I think he makes up for it. And actually, the way that they've remodeled his character allows the narrative to have developed mm. so that there's more relationship between the two brothers and gives greater space to the Moses character to reflect on the the genocide effect that he commits in God's name, killing all the firstborn. There's a, yeah, that is a really nice development that they've done with the plot to allow him the time and space to you know, literally say, I'm going to have to live with this. Mm. You've made me do That's this, That's not God. something you get in the film, is it? There's it's no not. reflection on that at all. No, and I think it's a lot more, you know, in so many ways, this is a lot more human mm. as a production. The question for many people will boil down to, is it better than the film? And I don't think that's totally fair. Not the right question to ask. No, it's, does this story gain anything by being told in this way? Yeah. You know, more like how the reproduction of The Lion King with the live-action animals for me, didn't add anything new. I think that this production with humans on stage definitely adds something new. It's not the same. I don't personally hold it as close to my heart as the film, but it allows different things to come through in that narrative and you will have a different experience. So if you want to go see the film, go watch the film. But if you're up for seeing something new in that same world, it's really worth your time. Deliver us! You've got to pick a pocket or two. Beethoven's String Quartet, number 13 in B-flat major, opus 130, written in 1826. Robert Schumann's Scenes from Childhood, opus 15, written in 1838. When he arrived on Mount Ophris, Kronos found his sister Rhea waiting for him. The sight of her darkly handsome brother, a huge sickle dripping blood in his hand, thrilled her to the point of internal explosion. <laughs> So I'm incredibly honoured to be joined by the composer Debbie Wiseman. Hello. Mythos Suite for Orchestra and Narrator has just been released and which I believe has already gone to number one in the classical charts. So congratulations. Thank you. Debbie, Stephen Fry is, is the narrator of the suite, which is inspired by his book of the same name. And am I right in saying that the idea for the suite was first mooted at the launch of the book. Yes, he invited me to his book launch and I went along and uh, we had a little chat at the launch and he just said an off-the-cuff comment, you know, do you think there's a suite of music to be written around these stories? And, you know, it was one of those things that happens at a party where somebody just says something and then usually you just forget about it, except what happened this time is I went away from the party 
and couldn't stop thinking about the idea and actually couldn't sleep that night because I was thinking about it so much and thinking, oh, I wonder if there is. And I reread the book and started to think about the stories, but in a slightly different way, thinking of them with my kind of music head on and thinking what would happen if the story of Persephone and the Chariot or the story of Sisyphus was accompanied by music. And, of course, in the book, they're very long. So I needed to find a way of... of sort of not exactly editing them but shortening the stories down to feel more compact that they would then yeah then they would lend themselves to musical accompaniment and that's what I did so I started with a few ideas I think I started with Rhea and started with a few ideas and then invited Stephen over to come and have a listen and I just had some ideas at the piano and um we sat around the piano and realized that yes this this was going to work was it a process of giving each character a theme and then connecting them together like that what was what was the sort of process from there it very much was about getting the themes to each of the the, the characters but also finding the musical world for them which was interesting you know there are lots of modes in greek uh, yeah. mythology so he was using sort of dorian mode and, and lydian mode and things like that to inspire the sweets but also um there's a lot of drama and, and violence and um a lot of space for music, a lot of beauty, a lot of love. Um, and they're quite spellbinding, these stories. When you, get, when you read them, you get drawn into the world. So what I wanted to do musically was invite the audience into the stories in a slightly different way than when you're listening. You know, I had Stephen's audio books to, to play around with, which he'd already recorded, so I had those in my ear, which was a great help. But then I could edit it, and I could find a route in, and I wanted to be able to make the music and the words feel completely seamless, almost like one, like Stephen is my vocalist. Yeah. You know, he's my singer, and the music just simply evolves with him in a very natural way. Yeah. Is that the same process that you would go through if you were writing to film or to TV? Would you, because it sounds like having the, the audiobooks there, it's kind of like having the equivalent of having the picture in front of you and then composing to it. Is it quite, was it a very similar process? Yeah, really similar, actually. The only difference is there's a bit more freedom because what happens in a film is you're given a cut by a director and say you're working on a car chase. Um, that's been edited and there are moments of impact and there are moments of drama that you have to hit with the music very precisely. Um, With this, I had a bit more flexibility, although I had Stephen's stories reading to me as I was at the piano writing, um, I could adjust them if I wanted to. I could take out sections if I wanted to. I could make things slightly longer. I could leave room for music. There could be a break from narration, as happens in a couple of the stories, where the music takes over for a minute or two to describe what we've just heard, and then the narration comes back in. So I had much more flexibility over the timing of everything and the shape of the whole suite, whereas on a film, you're very much um, writing to picture, and that generally doesn't change. Yeah. I mean, you do get a sense of that when you're listening to it. That, I mean, for example, a lot of the, I mean, there's really lyrical violin playing. It, it's, it, it feels not more expressive, perhaps not. That's not the right word, but it does feel like you've got more freedom. Yeah, I think it, I you know, film music is different because the dialogue is paramount, and your music has to weave in and out of the dialogue. With this, with narration, it's slightly different because I'm drawing pictures with the music. I am the pictures. I want to create pictures in people's minds as they're listening to the narration. So it gives you a little bit more opportunity to be a little bit bolder with the music, as you say, more expressive, perhaps. Not, Not that you can't be expressive in film music. Of course you can, but it's a slightly different world because you're looking at characters on a screen, and really... 
what you want when you go to a cinema is the whole experience. You know, you want to be able to enjoy everything. You don't want the music to speak to you um, over and above everything else. Mm. Whereas in this, um, the music is helping you tell the stories and draw the pictures at the same time. I remember somebody telling me a story, this might be wrong, but tell me a story about John Williams and that with Star Wars, he was given a lot of flexibility with the scenes that he was writing. And, and if he thought, oh, I kind of want to add a, extra eight bars in here and apparently the director would just say yeah well it's John Williams you've got to do it yeah, and they would just yeah. film extra seeds to fit around it yeah that can happen sometimes I mean it's quite rare but sometimes yes if you've got a very trusting director yeah. and you've worked together before and you have a great relationship as he has with his directors then um, there might be a bit of that because you know you get you get a fantastic glorious theme and it can be very truncated if it's not allowed time to breathe yeah, yeah. and that's a shame sometimes. Yeah. Have you ever had in your career so far moments where you've worked in that way with a director more mutually? On yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, certainly on Wolf Hall with with Peter Kosminski, um, he likes to get his music ideas very early on. We work together on the script. I, I, I'd written Cromwell's theme, I'd written Anne's theme before he'd shot any of the film. I'd worked with him on getting the style of the score right before he'd shot anything. And then when it was shot, we worked together on actually, you know, the, the, the final score for the TV series. But there was a lot of preparation and a lot of work done beforehand. Is that exclusively done, speak about how you worked with Stephen Fry at the piano, or, or do you mock up with samples. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I write at the piano because I'm classically trained. You know, the, the kind of tradition of writing at the piano with a manuscript paper and pencil is very ingrained. And that that is always going to be there. I always jot down and sketch the ideas first. But then, because everybody loves to hear the music before you go in the studio so that you can collaborate on it and you can comment on it, I then mock it up with samples and I pretend what I call my plastic orchestra you know, I pretend flutes and oboes and clarinets and yeah. strings, and then we go into the studio proper to record it with the live musicians. Yeah. But this time with with Stephen Fry and and it was at the National. Yeah, we had the National Symphony Orchestra, but I did the same thing actually with this. I previewed everything to Stephen. Did you? I, yeah, I sent him um, my demos of everything which he was listening to because he had to then amend his text a little bit because although I'd edited it I wanted to give him the chance to then go back and tweak things which he did very well so I sent him my demos I said have a listen to this and then he edited his text and then we went into the studio with an 80-piece National Symphony Orchestra at Abbey Road it was an absolutely fabulous um, setting to do it and Stephen narrated alongside the orchestra. Mm. But we recorded the music and then he narrated afterwards. Yeah. Did you know a lot of the players oh, in the yes. orchestra? Oh, yeah, all completely handpicked. And did you know that you were going to, when you were writing the music, did you have a sense that you were writing for a specific yeah. violinist and yeah, a specific I do. cellist? Yeah, I do. Particularly, I mean, a fantastic cellist called Jack Liebeck, you probably know, played all our solos. And he's got a very beautiful, intense sound. And I do imagine that as I'm writing it. When I'm writing for particular musicians, it's wonderful because you know their sound and you can, you, you have an image in your head, a sound in your head, mm. which helps the composition. Yeah, it sort absolutely. of goes hand in hand. And I, I orchestrate as I go. I don't write it and then orchestrate. I orchestrate as I go. So I've written something maybe for flute or we had a wonderful mandolin play called John Paracelli and I was writing for that and imagining him playing it as I was writing it. Mm. When was it that you made the decision that it was going to be 
film and TV music as opposed to... Was there a point where you sort of decided this is what I'm going to go and do? Or, or were you ever tempted to take a more concert hall operatic direction with your music? I think I always knew that I'd, I'd like to write for film. I like the idea of having something to inspire, having something on the screen to inspire. And also the natural style of my music, it tends to be quite melodic. And so I thought, well, that's a nice place to be because mm. film and TV music, you know, gobble up melodies quite nicely and they love melodies. So I thought, well, that's a nice place to be. Um, having said that, I love, you know, that I'm, I'm now, I've been Classic FM's composer in residence for, for a few years now. And the idea behind that was to write music, standalone music that they can release and I've done two albums for them the musical zodiac and the glorious garden both of which were purely standalone music and it, it was wonderful to actually have that kind of um, complete freedom nothing but a blank page to to inspire and I have you know I've got a commission coming up for the CBSO and things like that which are wonderful because it does use a slightly different part of your music um, brain because you're working in a slightly different way. Well, a very different way when the music is standalone. Yeah. You think about it in a different way. And you're conducting all the things that, you, that you're writing for film as well. Were you conducting at Abbey Road for this? Yes, for this, yeah, this, yeah, I conducted the orchestra. I love conducting. It's not something that most composers are particularly fond of doing, really? actually. Yeah, I find most composers shy away from it a little bit. But you really enjoy it. I really enjoy it, and really only because I've had to. You know, when I left college, um, I was at the Guildhall, I think I had one or two conducting lessons when I was there, but they were very much just part of the general course. But when I left and I started to get the odd gig as a composer on on a TV series or whatever, there was never any budget to hire a conductor. It was always really small-scale stuff to start with. And so, really, I had to do it. You know, I wanted to use live musicians. I would have a small lineup, maybe eight musicians or four string quartet or whatever. Or, you know, on a couple of the early projects, I managed to get up to about eight or nine musicians. And just to be able to direct the session and be able to get what the director wants out of the score mm. is very important. And so the best person to do that really is the composer. Because yeah. you know the music intimately, you've had conversations with the director, you know what they want, and you can create the score that really suits the picture. I suppose there's an element of control there. And there's an element, it? yes. If you're a control freak like me, then that's fine. <laughs> oh, so you'd say you are quite a control yeah, freak. Yeah, I but... do like to see it through, you know, from beginning to end. I, I don't like, I suppose... I see it as part of the process. You know, you write the music. It starts off with little scribbles on a manuscript page. And then it develops a little bit more. I play it into my software, music software, and I mock it up and I do the orchestration. And I've always done my own orchestrations because, again, the music and who plays it, the orchestra, um, come hand in hand. So that happens. And then the conducting of it actually is the thrill at the end because you bring it to life and you get these wonderful musicians, usually the best in the business in, yeah. a, in, a, in an orchestra, sight reading your music for the first time. They give it their performance and, and their energy and their interpretation of what you've written. And actually that's a real treat at the end. And, and I love that. Rather than having to explain to another conductor what it is that we're after, yeah. although you can put most of it on the page, you, there is still that element of having to learn the film where it all learned the project, whereas I know it. Yeah. Going back to working with Stephen Fry and the the suite, the first time you worked with Stephen Fry was with um, Wild, wasn't yes. it? That was back in, was it 90... 1997, I think. Seven, yeah. yeah. 
And have you worked with him in the intervening period? Or? Yeah, we have. Um, so Wilde was the first score that I wrote, and he starred as Oscar Wilde in the film. And that led on to an album which I was asked to write for Warner Classics about two of, uh, setting two of Oscar Wilde's fairy stories, The Nightingale and the Rose and The Selfish Giant. And Stephen read one, and Vanessa Redgrave, who was mm. also in Wilde, actually read the other. So that was another lovely collaboration. And then I was commissioned by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra to do a piece for their 60th anniversary called Six Different Voices. And that was going to be a kind of new young, peop- my young person's guide to the orchestra. And Different Voices was narrated by Stephen. Yeah, that was narrated, wasn't it? Yes. In concert. So we've had a few lovely collaborations. Is that indicative of... Cause I don't really know much about the, indus- the, the film music industry, per se, but is that indicative of the industry in that you have one really successful project, such as Wild, Or is that just because you're very good friends with him personally? Or? No, I think it, it is indicative of the industry. I mean, when you have something that is successful, that does well, often it does lead to other things. It's just the nature of the business, you know. I mean, after Wolf Hall, which was a terrific success, not only is the book, but then the theatre show and then the TV series. And Mark Rylance. And Mark Rylance yeah. and Claire Foy, and it was a wonderful success. You know, after that, we had so many people saying, could we do some... We've done live concerts of Wolf Hall with Anton Lesser, who mm. played Thomas More in the film, in the, in the series. And um, people want more of it, you know, if they enjoy it, which is the most wonderful thing. You know, a lot of projects that, that you work on, they don't have that success. You know, you can't have that on everything. Yeah. But one or two highlights that, that cut through. I mean, you know, Father Brown that I've been working on for the BBC for the past, um, gosh, lots and lots of years. You know, with this next series, we will have done 100 episodes of that series because people have enjoyed it, you know. Is, is there a sense with something like Father Brown, he's, he's 100 episodes, on, a, on episode 100, writing the music for it, is, does it get harder and harder to keep coming up with original ideas for the same format? Is there a well, struggle there? actually not with Father Brown, because every individual episode is a new story, and they have new characters, there's a new murder mystery. So you're inspired by that, although there is a... Of course, there are themes for Father Brown and for Soroka Cusack, who plays Mrs McCarthy, and, you know, there are, there are the key characters have their themes... But uh, within that, there's a lot of flexibility and there are new characters coming in in each episode and, you know, guests, star guests that you might, you know, different murders and different action sequences to write for. So each time you're, you're getting a little bit more help with the music. And speaking of Wolf Hall, the, new, the third, is it the third book or the final book? Yeah, the final book, The Mirror and the Light, which now. comes out on March the 5th. It comes out on March the 5th. And Thursday. presumably that will be being made... With Mark Rylance? Everybody's hoping so, Everybody's yeah. Hoping. Everybody's hoping, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. It's a little way off still because yeah. the script has to be written and everybody has to be available and the yeah. cast have to be available. So it's a little way off, but everybody's, yeah, of course, very much hoping that that will be um, on, on the horizon. Yeah. Oh, me too. Not too far away, hopefully. Well, looking at the clock, we're, we are sadly out of time. It's four o'clock. But thank you, wow. Debbie. It's really kind of you to make the oh, time. Oh, it's a pleasure. And good it's been to really talk lovely to, to speak to you. Yeah. And good luck with, uh, with Wolf Hall if it hopefully ends up happening. Thank you. And, and best of luck with uh, Mythos. And hopefully we'll see you working with Stephen Fry in the future. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you very much. Finish! 
Tim, what's coming up other than birthdays? Because I know there are a lot of those and I haven't been invited to any parties yet. Mm, yeah, on Sunday the 1st of March, which is the birthday of both Shopper and Thomas Addis, Cafe Otto in Dalston, Hipster Dalston, are hosting a participatory performance of John Cage's 1969 piece, 33 and a third whose score calls for a room to be filled with 12 record players and hundreds of records, and then the audience are encouraged to make their own selections and play the records freely, thus allowing a new music to emerge from the collage. Right, so if you need a din, then head there. Sunday the 2nd of March is Smetna and Kurt Vile's birthday. On Wednesday the 4th and the 11th and the 18th and the 25th of March... Candid Arts, an art gallery and cafe in Angel, is hosting a free chamber music series from 6 to 7pm. And the first and the fourth, which is actually Vivaldi's birthday, features Beethoven's Quintet in C, Opus 29, and Mendelssohn's Quintet in B-flat, Opus 87. Two great pieces. Also on Wednesday the 4th, soprano Elizabeth Llewellyn, friend of the pod, who we interviewed in the last episode, sings Beethoven's Mrs. Lemnis with the BBC Symphony Orchestra and Chorus at the Barbican. Mm, on the 5th of March, which is the birthday of Hector Villalobos, there's an adventurous-looking double bill of concerts at the Southbank Centre from the Philharmonia, featuring music by Zanakis, Ryman, Nussen, Messian, and George Benjamin, who's also conducting. That'd be great for the hardcore music fans. The 6th of March is the birthday of lovely Stephen Schwartz, whose Prince of Egypt score we reviewed earlier. The 7th of March is the birthday of Maurice Ravel. The 8th is the birthday of both C.P. Bach and the murderous genius Carlo Gesualdo. And the 9th is the birthday of Samuel Barber. What mm. were they doing to all get born at the same time? I don't know, it's crazy, hey. On Wednesday the 11th at the Glad Cafe in Glasgow... Over At brings you a night of new music from the trans community with works including John Cage's 433, reimagined as an intersectional protest. Mm. And finally, on the 13th of March in Salford, the BBC Phil and BBC Sport team up for Beat Beethoven, which is a public fun run in which participants are challenged to run a 5K faster than the BBC Phil can play Beethoven's fifth, which is usually around 35 minutes. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Thank you to Tessa from Premiere. And to Debbie Wiseman for inviting me into her home and giving me some grapes to take away with me. How generous. And on his 335th birthday, we'll leave you with a little bit of handle. Happy birthday, George Friedrich. Happy birthday.